Well, hello everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine. With you is Dr. Danya Koja. I'm an emergency physician who practices in the United States. And I'm Dr. Wendy Chang, an emergency physician and neurointensivist in Baltimore, Maryland. And today we'll be discussing the Critical Decisions in Emergency Medicine publication from June of 2022. And if you don't know what Critical Decisions is, what are you waiting for? Critical Decisions is ASAP's official CME publication. Each month, we talk about two lessons that are bread and butter emergency medicine or things that are cutting edge. There are also a lot of other features such as the critical procedure, critical EKG, and as our listeners know, my favorite, the LLSA review. So starting with our first lesson of this issue, under the skin, necrotizing fasciitis and cellulitis. Thank you to Drs. Jeremy Raikina, Sonia Naganathan, and Farooq Mekri for writing this article. Fortunately, necrotizing fasciitis is a lot less common than just good old cellulitis, but, you know, one case can scare us for a long time. Yep, it definitely can. It's helpful to remember that the IDSA classifies all soft tissue infections and skin infections, either purulent, so the ones that have an abscess somewhere, and that's not the topic today at all, and non-purulent cellulitis which includes things like necrotizing fasciitis. And as you said, thankfully, necrotizing fasciitis is quite rare. One in 100,000 people. Of course, that one came to my emergency department a few months ago when I was working. And that case was quite interesting, actually. It's a man with diabetes who's just on metformin, so not like poorly controlled or anything, who came in with some chest pain. But then when you look at his chest, it was tender and red. And I was like, oh, well, maybe there's an abscess, maybe some septic arthritis underneath. And boom, the man had gas everywhere. And that's pretty scary because mortality is up to 30%. So we must be extremely vigilant about the diagnosis. Wow, that is a scary case. So let's start with the more common things. Do we need to cover all non-purulent soft tissue infections for MRSA? Nope. Most mild infections are caused by group A strep. So penicillin or first-generation cephalosporin should be enough. Now, patients who have risk factors probably need MRSA coverage. Things like no nasal colonization, history of MRSA, concurrent MRSA somewhere else, recent hospitalization or recent antibiotics. Then you can add sulfamethoxazole, trimethoprim, or Bactrim. You can also add like doxycycline or clindamycin depending on your local resistance patterns. That's for your patients who are not ill, that are considered mild cellulitis. For your sicker patients, consider linazolid to cover for MRSA instead of VINC as it's not as nephrotoxic, and it can also suppress the toxins, and that can be even helpful. Okay. What about other pearls regarding treatment of cellulitis? Well, as we said, if a patient has any systemic signs like fever and tachycardia, then they're considered moderate, and these would need the same coverage, but you would consider something IV, closer monitoring, again, they're more likely to get sicker. Even these patients should only have MRSA coverage added if they're septic or if you're concerned that there's a deeper infection underneath that. So it's actually purulent, you just have no idea. And there's a great table in the article listing the antibiotics and the doses. The authors caution against this practice that's unfortunately more common than it should be of giving everyone with cellulitis a dose of vancomycin before sending them home on some magical oral antibiotics because that's nephrotoxic, it increases resistance, has a lot of side effects, and just does not really make much sense. 
That's a really good reminder for sure. All right, then let's talk about necrotizing fasciitis. Cases of necrotizing fasciitis usually start with some minor trauma that the patient does not remember. There's a bunch of red flags. The first one is poop or pain out of proportion. The other one is significant tenderness at the side of pain or the exact opposite, which is not feeling much because it's insensate and the area is dead. You can also feel crepitus or emphysema because there's gas, or you can see weird skin changes like bullae or ecchymosis. And the patients usually have some risk factor like diabetes, alcohol use, immunocompromise, and it can be one of a bunch of types. The first one is type one, which is the polymicrobial one, mostly anaerobes, and that's the immunocompromised people. Type two, which is group A strep, which is your younger patients as well. And these can present with something that looks like toxic shock syndrome, and they respond actually better to clinda than penicillin. And type three, which is your clostridial from clostridium perfringes, which starts usually at the site of injury, or can be hematogenous or from like a GI route, like a GI cancer. And these patients also respond quite well to clinda because it neutralizes the preformed toxins. There are some less common types, the ones that are caused by Vibrio vulnificus or Aeromonas hydrophilia in a patient who's either exposed to seawater or fresh water during a trauma, or more importantly for me, someone who consumes contaminated seafood, which I think it's worth thinking of, or patients with liver disease because they can't fight that Vibrio. I see. So any other pearls about, you know, the actual diagnosis of necrotizing fasciitis? Serial examination showing a rapid spread, for example, while they're waiting in the emergency department, should raise a lot of suspicion because infection this rapidly spreading may be just spreading through facial planes because it's the fascia that's infected. If patients look toxic, they're febrile, tachycardic, septic, take a moment and ask yourself, is there something hiding underneath that cellulitis? which is your necrotizing fasciitis. You must undress the patient and examine all the hidden areas, genitals, skin folds, buttocks, feet. If you don't touch the perineum, if you don't lift up the pannus, if you don't take off the socks, and if you don't roll over the patient, then you have not really looked for a source of infection or a source of sickness. Poop or pain out of proportion is 90% sensitive. Hemorrhagic bully are 25% sensitive. And keep in mind that that skin may be insensate. If that's the case and that's new, then maybe that's because the skin and the tissue underneath it are dead. Some people like to use the LRINEC score, which is a lab risk indicator for necrotizing fasciitis score, to think of this diagnosis and to rule it out. It includes things like CRP, WBC, hemoglobin, sodium, creatinine, and glucose. This is not sufficient because your score of six or more, which is the cutoff recommended, has a sensitivity of only 68.2%. So instead, just carry a coin in your pocket and flip it, and that's almost as sensitive as your Larnix score. If we carry coins anymore, maybe there's an app for a coin. Look, I have a coin. (laughs) Ta-da! You need it to scratch things off. (laughs) Gotcha. (laughs) But yes, there also is an app to flip a coin. (laughs) Okay. Let's say you have all these concerning findings and you've examined the patient thoroughly and the patient has pain out of proportions, hemorrhagic bullet. So what about the actual diagnosis itself? So the only way to truly diagnose it is surgical exploration to look at the fascia itself and say good or not good. 
things like dishwasher-like drainage, which is very confusing because I'm not sure what dishes are being washed that look like that. Poor fascial layer integrity with a necrotic appearance and minimal bleeding are things that are concerning. And it's something that is usually left to surgeons but can be done at bedside. I've actually had a phenomenal surgeon once come to consult on a patient in the ED and they looked quite concerning. They grabbed a scalpel at the bedside, cut the skin, looked at the goopy mess that was the fascia, and then whisked the patient to the OR. In low resource settings, that might actually be something that's done by the emergency physicians if you're just stuck. Maybe so if you're able to cut the skin, you know, without anesthesia, that's the that, sign itself. <laughs> that is exactly it. Because I was just like, are you really just randomly cutting this person's skin? And they're like, yeah, they can't feel it. It's insensate. Look, boop, boop. Yikes. They were right. And that's why they're phenomenal surgeons. That's true. All right. What about imaging? Is that helpful? So imaging is not diagnostic, but may be helpful. However, it should not delay the next steps. Gas on x-ray is around 50% sensitive, but if you find it, it's 90% specific. An ultrasound may show thick or irregular fascial planes or fluid between planes. There may be something called dirty shadowing because there's like free air in the subcutaneous tissue. And then something that's the complete opposite of dirty dishwasher fluid, you may have the champagne sign, which is basically air bubbling in the subcutaneous tissue from gas forming infection. CT is only 88.5% sensitive, but it's 93.3% specific. So you would see gas within the soft tissue as well as subcutaneous fluid, fat stranding, fascial thickening, and it can also be helpful to surgeons to decide how deep they're going to start their exploration. It is enhanced by the contrast if you have any left. <laughs> and remember that MRI is best. However, it is the least practical. It is 93% sensitive. The article has phenomenal images, so definitely take a look at them. Okay, I think we all know the treatment for necrotizing fasciitis, but let's review. Surgery and antibiotics. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> the authors recommend linezolid plus pepercillin-tazobactam plus either clinda or dapto infusion. But there are other treatment methods out there as well where people would give vancomycin instead of linezolid. Okay. Other treatments that are adjunctive? So there are quite a few studies about the use of IVIG or intravenous immunoglobulin and hyperbaric oxygen. So it's definitely something to discuss with your consultants if you have access to these things so the patient would get them in conjunction with the surgery and antibiotics. Well, thank you, Dania, for taking us through this lesson on necrotizing fasciitis and cellulitis. I think a big reminder for generally caring for patients with any non-purulent soft tissue infection is that we don't necessarily need to cover for MRSA unless they have known risk factors. And if you're worried about certainly more severe, deeper infections. Now, specific to necrotizing fasciitis, we're all pretty familiar with the red flags like pain out of proportion, significant tenderness, or lack of sensation, you know, skin changes like crepitus and bole and ecchymosis. I think we have to have a high index of suspicion, examine the patient really thoroughly, like you mentioned, uh, to be able to find these, uh, since these patients obviously can be quite sick. Remember that although there are scoring rules out there like the Larenic score, it is not actually very sensitive. And if you have any concerns, definitely get a surgeon involved and should not be delayed by imaging while you're also, of course, treating the patient with antibiotics and 
hopefully uh, surgical planning at the same time. That was a great summary. And keeping up with infections that have horrible outcomes is our clinical pediatrics case of the month. So it's a case of a 14-year-old female who presented with belly pain and vomiting. And the initial lab showed some mild transaminitis, so there was some concern about a biliary pathology. She was also found to be anemic, actually. Her hemoglobin uh, has dropped to 8 from 12 about three months ago, which was attributed to possibly menstruation. She ultimately got an ultrasound, and they found a massive spleen and a large amount of free fluid. So she actually has a spontaneous splenic rupture from infectious mononucleosis. You know, I think the word rupture just represents badness, irrelevant in what context you put it in. So there's that. This is quite a scary case, and it's something to remember that the most common cause of splenomegaly in children is something as simple as infection, like mono from Epstein-Barr virus. However, the fun part here is that 90% of cases are completely asymptomatic, as was the case with this child. The symptoms can also be very nonspecific, fever, lymphadenopathy, pharyngitis, fatigue. The labs would show like atypical lymphocytosis, mild transaminitis, but then splenomegaly is present in around half of the patients. And then it shows up anywhere between day four and week eight, so quite a wide range. Most people by day 14 and the majority of them by the end of week four. The fear, is, as happened with this patient, is splenic rupture. So any patient who's diagnosed with mono, they have to avoid trauma. However, 50% of cases of rupture are actually spontaneous. We should advise patients to abstain from sports, whether contact sports or no contact sports, no sports, nothing, for four whole weeks, and then they can slowly return to activity over the next four weeks. So that's until the end of week eight. The patients may also have chronic fatigue, taking up to three to four months to improve as well. And that's important to think about. Great reminders. Also pay attention to acute anemia. <laughs> So moving on to the LLSA review about pulmonary embolism. We're reviewing an article by Kiran Natal that was published in 2019 in the New England Journal that was entitled Diagnosis of Pulmonary Embolism with D-dimer Adjusted to Clinical Probability. And I'm like managing and trying to figure out PE with D-dimer sounds like very basic knowledge. So what does this article add to our current style or approach to PE? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, this study actually proposes a slight change to our standard approach to ruling out PE in low-risk patients, and they called it the pulmonary embolism graduated D-dimer strategy. So essentially, this prospective study enrolled more than 2,000 patients from Canadian EDs and clinics with suspected PE, and they used the Wells criteria to risk stratify the patients. They risk stratified them to low, moderate, or high risk. Those who were low and moderate risk got a D-dimer. Uh, those who were high risk got a CTA chest. And then they used a different cutoff, which is what's, I think, different from our current practice, which is that they used a cutoff of a dimer less than 1,000 if the patient is low probability. Those who were moderate risk, moderate probability, they used a 500 as the threshold. And any, of course, values greater than those thresholds or considered positive D-dimers ultimately got a CT. Everyone who was ultimately ruled out using these two different thresholds for 
low and moderate probability patients, you know, were discharged home. So all of these patients were followed up for three months, and essentially everybody who was not found to have a PE, either by the two different cutoffs of D-dimer or by CTHS, were not ultimately found to have a venous thromboembolism, except one person. So, you know, this really decreased the amount of imaging than I think our current approach. Yep, the way they calculated it in the article is that if they were to do it the classical way, they would have imaged 17.6% more of people. So that's quite a lot of people. Definitely something to think about, especially in our patients who have true contrast allergies. And of course, since we don't have much contrast laying around. So keeping up with the scary causes of chest pain in the emergency department, let's talk about ECGs. The critical ECG of the month is called, is it myocardial infarction or hyperkalemia? So it's like that show, like, is it cake? Have you, have you seen it, Wendy? No. Okay, so you need to watch this. It's basically a TV show where things show up and they have to guess if it's like a cake or not a cake. And then they guess and then they cut it and they figure out if it's a cake or not a cake. Oh, as in they're made to look like a cake or made to look like a real item? Yes. And there's also mm-hmm. another TV show that's similar to it that's Japanese where they like, if you think it's cake, you don't cut into it, you bite into it, which can be a little unfortunate if something like a shoe. But I digress. However, however, talking about this month's critical decision article, the critical ECG, this is a case where the Q wave in the inferior leads and lateral leads make you question whether the patient had a prior MI. But if you look closely at these Q waves, you have to look really closely because they were small. They were smaller than 40 milliseconds, and they were only 25% of the amplitude of the QRS. They were not from that inferior MI. Something to keep in mind as well is that the peaked T waves can either be upright or inverted, depending on what the patient's original EKG looks like. In this case, the patient had dextrocardia, which is why it looked confusing. It was not cake. No, it was not cake, and it's (laughs) as high stakes as if you were going to bite into a shoe, so... Important findings to keep in mind on the next EKG you read. Absolutely. And that's why it's always helpful to take a look at the old EKG to try to understand what their norm is. So let's say you looked at it and you decided that this is ischemia. What are you supposed to do if you find signs of ischemia? That's what our critical image this month tries to help us figure out. It talks about chest pain and using imaging for cardiac ischemia. And it talks about a case of an older woman who comes in with an NSTEMI who had a nuclear medicine myocardial perfusion spect that showed no inducible ischemia, but the cath showed significant three-vessel disease that required a cabbage. That's quite scary. Yeah, exactly. How many of these tests are we getting nowadays? Well, we don't have a shortage of... um... (laughs) Nuclear medicine agents? Yes. Okay. Yes, that's the key word here. It's important to remember that the specificity for these imaging modalities are 70 to 80%, and the sensitivity can be as low as 44% for multivessel disease. So this is a case where that coin in your pocket would also be helpful. All right. Note to self, got to carry a coin in my pocket. (laughs) But I learned a lot from this. You know, there's lots of reasons on why patients could have false negative nuclear medicine myocardial perfusion studies. It could be because there was inadequate stress that was, you know, induced by the agent. There's different definitions or thresholds for a positive test. 
the specific agent being used, imaging techniques, the patient's specific collateral circulation, and of course, potential errors in interpretation. I think the important thing is the reason this may not be really helpful for multivessel disease is that if you had, let's say, very calcified uh, arteries, the actual medication you're giving to vasodilate doesn't really change the blood flow of the coronaries. And so there can, you know, it may not actually induce this ischemic uh, pattern and therefore it will look like it's negative. Definitely important to remember these limitations. So now shifting gears a little bit, our critical procedure this month is negative pressure wound therapy application, or the thing that we colloquially call the wound vac. We definitely see this a lot in the ED, so it is worth knowing how to deal with, uh, you know, complications or when it fails and how to change it. So how do we do it? So the idea with these wound vacs is that they expedite wound healing, but the problem is that if you leave them on for too long, infections, like serious infections, like toxic shock syndrome, may fester because there's a sponge that's just like soaked in wound goo. So that's why it's important for us to not leave these patients, especially when they're having difficulty getting their regular follow-up. So first, like all procedures, get your equipment ready. You need to have your reticulated foam sponge, and there are several types. The most common one that we tend to see is the black reticulated polyurethane ether foam. There's a denser white one that's made from vinyl, or there's some impregnated with silver, especially if there's known to be a lot of infection in the wound. You have to have occlusive dressing material, the vacuum or the suction tubing itself, and of course, cleansers to clean the wound. Now you need to take off the old wound vac. If it's adhered to the tissue, you need to either instill saline in the tubing itself or on the sponge and let it sit for like five to 10 minutes and then remove it. After that, clean the wound by irrigation, gentle wiping, make sure to remove all the pieces of sponge. You may need like tweezers if there's like smaller ones. And then make sure to cleanse and dry the peri wound area. You may want to protect the peri wound area by adding occlusive dressing to it because if it is kind of like suctioned and vacuumed, it can become macerated and injured. And then cut the foam to the shape of the wound and use as many layers of that foam as need be, especially in deeper wounds, to reach the level of that peri-wound area so it's like flat. A good place to start is count the number of foam pieces you just removed. Place the foam and then cover everything with the adherent occlusive dressing, which should extend past the wound itself by around half an inch or so. In the middle, cut a one to two centimeter hole in the top adhesive dressing, apply the vacuum tubing and connect it to the system. Activate it and make sure it seals. And then leave your signature on your artwork. Make sure to leave a label with the date, the time, the number of foam pieces that you've used. There are a couple of contraindications that we need to know about. Mostly that if the wound is really gross with lots of purulence, it's gonna clog up the machine and you probably shouldn't use it for that. Great tips, definitely check out this section. For our critical cases in orthopedics and trauma this month, it is on pelvic fractures with urethral injury. We all know that pelvic fractures are high energy mechanisms of injury, and there is quite high mortality with it, 10 to 13% in, you know, even mild to moderate cases and up to 50% if unstable. You may be familiar with that there's a classification system that differentiates, you know, the mechanism of injury as well as the extent and stability of the injury. I think 
if we're going by how a patient is presenting after an accident, generally, if you think about rollover MVCs or patients who are struck by a car, you're worried about lateral compression or anterior posterior compression fractures, whereas uh, motor vehicle accidents and falls can cause vertical shear injuries. It's important to evaluate for the stability of these fractures with compression on the iliac crests. You need to examine the abdomen, the perineum, the rectal tone, the lower extremities. And if you find any blood of the urethral meatus, if the patient has any hematuria, difficulty voiding, perineal bruising, a boggy prostate, you will need to use a retrograde urethrogram followed by a cystogram to evaluate for a urethral or bladder injury. Just like we always say, we need to be thorough, we need to undress our patients, we need to take a look and make sure we don't miss these injuries because then we can just worsen the trauma if we're missing it. Very good points. For our second lesson of this issue, breathing room, respiratory failure in a myasthenic crisis. Thank you to Dr. Zachary Funk, Elizabeth DeVos, and Adnan Javed for this article. You know, Wendy, we don't talk about neuromuscular respiratory failure enough. Let's start with basics. Let's start with myasthenia. What is myasthenia gravis? Well, it's an autoimmune disorder where there is autoantibodies that are produced against receptors in the neuromuscular junction. And the hallmark symptom is fluctuating weakness that worsens with repeated use, so essentially fatigable weakness. 50% of these patients initially present with ptosis or diplopia, and they can progress to involve bulbar muscles, respiratory muscles, and you know your global you know, axial muscles. It's classically taught that this is more common in females with a bimodal distribution, but the article actually mentions that there have been several large population studies that did not actually find this. So we should really have a high nexus suspicion of potential myasthenia gravis as, you know, first time presentations in any sex, age, race, or ethnicity. So how is myasthenia typically managed? The symptoms of myasthenia gravis is managed with acetylcholinesterase inhibitors or pyridostigmine and immunosuppression. So that can be glucocorticoids, azathioprine, or mycophenolate. For more severe or refractory cases, some of these patients may be on outpatient IVIG, plasmapheresis, uh, gets uh, cyclophosphamide, or even rituximab. All right. So this is how we manage myasthenia gravis on a regular basis. But how do we manage a myasthenic crisis? How is that different? Yeah. So, I mean, patients with myasthenia gravis can have exacerbation of symptoms from many factors, but if there is a rapid progressive weakness or paralysis of their respiratory or or pharyngeal muscles, this is really a myasthenic crisis where there is this impending and risk of respiratory failure. And a component of that is due to respiratory muscle weakness. And another component of that is that, you know, the patient may have difficulty managing oral secretions, maybe just from bulbar muscle weakness. But also, if you think about how pyridostigmine works, you know, it's a cholinergic agent, so it can actually contribute to a lot of bronchorrhea, mucus plugging, aspiration, pneumonitis. And, you know, if you think about somebody who has potentially worsening myasthenic symptoms and had their outpatient pyridostigmine increased, well, maybe this puts them over the edge and adds to this whole respiratory failure picture. Uh, The usual triggers for worsening myasthenia symptoms and myasthenic crisis are due to infection, surgery, which is a lot of stress on the body, tapering of immunosuppressive drugs, but also we do this to 
these patients. A lot of medications, especially antibiotics such as aminoglycosides, quinolones, and macrolides can inhibit synaptic transmission. So it's not uncommon that a patient get one of these antibiotics and then has exacerbation of their symptoms and potentially even a myasthenic crisis. Definitely great reminders, especially for us to be vigilant in patients coming in with infections or with recent medication change. So what are some clues on the physical examination that can help us figure out that this patient is in a myasthenic crisis? Certainly the patient may present with dyspnea and this can be subjective or objective. Uh, They can have difficulty managing their secretions. They may have a hypophonic voice and they could have accessory muscle use, paradoxical breathing, etc. It's important to remember that you know, the initial compensation for this respiratory muscle weakness or respiratory insufficiency is tachypnea. Tachypnea in a myasthenic patient is concerning for sure. You can also see orthopnea because if you think about the patient having diaphragmatic weakness, you know, they're using gravity really to help them take in their breaths. And if they're laying down flat, uh, they're losing that additional advantage. Some ways to monitor and get an objective measure of their respiratory function. You can use bedside respiratory testing, like measuring a forced vital capacity, negative inspiratory force. Uh, But this may be difficult in your very dyspneic patient, of course, or if your myasthenia patient has a lot of oral pharyngeal weakness, they can't really form a seal with their mouth. To perform these tests, you can just have them do a single breath count, meaning taking a single breath and try and count as high as they can count. All right. So patient is having trouble breathing. We figure that piece out. But how do we figure out who we need to intubate? I think a lot of that, you know, we certainly can make a clinical judgment with all of, you know, the experience of emergency physicians uh, seeing patients who present with respiratory insufficiency. But objectively, if you were measuring and trending a patient's respiratory function tests, A forced vital capacity that's less than 10 to 20 mLs per kilo of ideal body weight, a negative inspiratory force that's less than minus 20 to minus 30 centimeters of water, or if they can only get 15 to 20 words out in a single breath. Those are some thresholds that would be quite concerning for impending respiratory failure. Got it. So 20. 20, yes. 20. That's the way to think about it. All right. So how about non-invasive positive pressure ventilation? Can we use that? Yeah, you can definitely consider this in patients who, let's say, have mild respiratory insufficiency, and they have to be, of course, awake and alert so that they're not at additional risk of aspiration. Uh, It certainly can decrease the amount of ventilator days and ICU days, but if the patient is already hypercapnic, uh, that is quite severe, and these patients are unlikely to turn around with non-invasive positive pressure ventilation and really should be intubated. Got it. So let's say the patient is not a candidate for non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, and we decided that they need to be intubated because they are 20. Are there any specific considerations for their RSI medications? Yeah. So if you think about, again, mechanistically, these patients have fewer postsynaptic acetylcholine receptors. So if you were to use a depolarizing neuromuscular agent like succinylcholine, it's actually less potent, so you need higher dose. But the trouble is that you can also have a very unpredictable response, so it's generally not recommended. And so the use of non-depolarizing agents are preferred, and in this case, you need a lower dose so that you can reduce the likelihood of 
prolonged paralysis from having too much of that. Well, I mean, if they're intubated, then prolonged paralysis is not that big of a problem. As long as your sedation matches the duration of your paralysis. Absolutely. So this was a great short review of how to manage respiratory failure in a myasthenic crisis. And this was a great reminder that there are several triggers that should raise our suspicion that something else is going on. Things like infection, surgery, medication change, or starting new medicines like candolones or macrolides that can worsen the situation. And if patients are having some dyspnea, difficulty managing their oral secretions, paradoxical breathing, then that can be a telltale that they are going into respiratory failure. Sometimes we need to actually get some numbers to figure out if we have crossed over to that line and they need to be intubated. And we can actually get those at the bedside. A forced vital capacity of less than 10 to 20 mLs per kilo of their ideal body weight, their negative inspiratory force of less than minus 20 to minus 30 centimeters of water, and if their spontaneous breath count is less than 15 to 20 words. So 20 is our happy number. If they cannot get to 20, then they need to be intubated. Non-invasive positive pressure ventilation may be helpful in some patients if they're not hypercapnic yet and they're like super early, but otherwise it does not. That's right. Thank you, Dania. For our drug box this month, it is on capsaicin for cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. And, you know, capsaicin works to desensitize these sensory neurons and essentially ultimately inhibit the transmission of pain. And there has been a lot of studies that show that there's decreased need for medications, including opioids, and better symptom relief with the use of capsaicin. But it's not actually found to reduce the rate of admissions or return ED visits. And in addition to that, sometimes patients don't really tolerate it because of the actual discomfort with the use of capsaicin. So it might be an agent that uh, is better used in the ED rather than to tell the patient to use it at home. Uh, The common side effects that you have to pay attention to is mostly, you know, local skin reactions such as erythema, pain, pruritus, edema, or papules. But you could also have some transient hypertension uh, or even some, you know, respiratory irritation and nausea vomiting. Great review of a simple treatment for something that can be quite challenging to manage in the emergency department. For our tox box this month, last but not least, is xylazine toxicity, which is a horse tranquilizer. Um, Do I really need to keep talking about it? I mean, it's a horse tranquilizer. (laughs) (laughs) It is bad. (laughs) Um, So PSA, if it's something that's made for a horse or like a tranquilizer or ivermectin, please don't take it. Um, However, (laughs) back to our specific tox box. The horse tranquilizer can actually be found as an adulterant in fentanyl or cocaine to enhance euphoria. And it has alpha-2 agonist property, just like quantity. So patients can come in with sienna sedation, bradycardia, hypotension, respiratory depression. And if they're injecting it, they may have ulcerations at the injection site. The patient just needs supportive care. So they may need atropine for their bradycardia, prosthesis for their hypotension, amiodarone or lidocaine for their ventricular arrhythmias, 
But if they're asymptomatic in four to six hours, they can go bye-bye. Good reminder. But again, don't use horse medications. (laughs) Well, thank you, Wendy, for taking the time to go through this issue with me. I've learned a lot. Our dear listeners, I hope that you have enjoyed listening to us as much as we've enjoyed recording this. And we hope that you find the Critical Decisions publication and our podcast always informative, often enlightening, and never boring. Please connect with us on Twitter. My handle is at Dania Koja. Mine is at EM underscore NCC. And until next month, bye-bye.